felt so happy. It was a beautiful fall day. And what's the thought of this happening once again? It's such an amazing happening. Coming together for a three-month retreat is really quite a rare event in the world. There aren't many places, actually, where it happens. Just the thought of every fall, you know, people from all over the world coming to Barry and undertaking this kind of practice. has filled me with a tremendous amount of joy. I hope it fills you with as much. By December it will. <laughs> now each fall there's this wonderful gathering of Dhamma practitioners. And just to clarify for some of you, some of the words we use may have a slightly strange ring to them. Sometimes we say Dhamma, which is Pali, and sometimes Dharma, which is Sanskrit. After some time, you'll begin to distinguish what's simply a New York accent <laughs> and what's an ancient Indian language. Now we get together each fall and the first few days are meeting and it's talking together and working together and connecting. And then on Saturday night, tomorrow night, a bell will ring and it's entering into a whole new land a whole new landscape. We enter into a land of silence, which is one of the most rare things in this world. Just to be living in silence for three months. It's a land of depth, tremendous depth of experience. Now the bell rings tomorrow evening and it's entering into a land of aloneness, of really being alone, of being with oneself. This is rare, it's really rare for people to do this for three months. It's also entering into a land of oneness in this aloneness. Really opening to and exploring the commonality, the essential oneness of being. It's a land of intensity and immediacy of experience. 
one of the great powers of a retreat of any length, and particularly one that is three months, everything gets very intense because our experience is so immediate. There are very few distractions and diversions in the environment. And so we enter into a land where we're really coming face to face with ourselves. And so it's an amazing undertaking. Dhamma practice, in this sense, is really the master game of life. Because it explores very precisely and deeply the very nature of life itself. Now, what is the nature of this body? What is the nature of this mind? What does it mean to be alive? Not intellectually, not conceptually dealing with these questions, but in the immediacy of the practice. These are the questions that we're exploring. What does it mean to be alive? What is life? What is the nature of discontent in our lives? What is the nature of suffering? What are the causes of suffering? This is what we're looking at, and looking at in a very immediate and careful and ongoing way. And what is the experience? What are the possibilities of a genuine happiness? Of a deep happiness in our lives? What's the experience? What what can we actually taste of freedom in the mind? This is the master game, because it's what life is about. And our task is really to explore this, to understand it for ourselves, not as second-hand knowledge, not from what we read in books and not from what people tell us about it. It's really, can we see it for ourselves? So this is the undertaking. Vipassana, as a word in Pali, means literally to see things clearly. To see things in a clear way. When we first begin the practice, and when we first begin a retreat, I think this is true for experienced yogis as well as as well as new yogis. The mind is generally quite a river, a rushing river of memories and of plans and of likes and dislikes and views and opinions and judgments filled with expectations and desires 
mostly what happens in our lives is that we're carried away, we're carried along, we're identified with these very strongly conditioned forces. They're always going on. You know, this, this flow of mental phenomena. And mostly in our lives, we're just, just swept along in this current. And when we are swept along, there's not enough calm and there's not enough clarity. There's not enough spaciousness in the mind to see what is really there, to see what is going on. So a retreat is a very special time for a special purpose. And the purpose is to develop a strong and continuous observing power of mind. In one sense, it seems so obvious that if we want to understand things, if we want to understand ourselves, it's not a question of a belief and it's not a question of hopes. It's a question of looking. If we want to understand the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, what do we do? We look, we observe. And this, this is the laboratory for us. And so the retreat is designed for this very specific purpose, to develop and strengthen this careful observing power. When we begin the retreat, often this observing power seems rather weak. We're with half a breath and gone in some thought or memory or anticipation. Maybe it's a few minutes until we realize that we're off and come back again. But what is so amazing about the power of the practice is that as we do it, as we apply ourselves, very slowly and gradually and steadily, this observing power of the mind is strengthened. And I know from very direct experience that this can actually happen. When I first started a meditation practice, it was almost 25 years ago. And I would sit and think all the time. I would sit down, I'd watch one breath, my mind would be off, and at the end of the hour, so oh, that was a good sitting. <laughs> and it went really quickly. And I was just thinking, 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 thinking continuously. But over all these years, it's gotten a little bit better. <laughs> you know, I can see that the mind has calmed down a little bit, that I actually can concentrate on a few breaths at a time. And so it's possible, I see that with training, the mind 
can be strengthened in this way. And that's what makes that's what makes the endeavor so creative. We're actually fashioning and training our minds, our attention, our observing power. When we do this, as we do it, what happens is that it gives us the ability to go beyond the surface level of appearances. Basically, we live our life on the surface of things. Our sense of ourselves, of who we are, our sense of other people, of the relationships, our sense of the world. It's just a perception on the surface. But as our minds get stronger, as this observing power gets stronger, we, we have the power, we have the strength to go beneath the surface. And whole new worlds begin to open up. We really enter a new reality. It's a, it's a different way of understanding things. To do this is not easy. It's really not an easy task because our minds have, have been conditioned in a particular way, certainly throughout this lifetime, and as the Buddha taught, for many, many, countless lifetimes. So there's strong, strong forces of conditioning in the mind. The undertaking of this practice of awakening, of waking up to what is happening moment to moment, it's a huge task. And it takes a very strong commitment. It takes a strong effort to do this. What makes it possible is developing a continuity to the observing power. If we're intermittent with it, you know, if we're mindful for a little while and then space out for hours at a time and are mindful for a little while again, it takes a very long time to develop a real momentum. And so an emphasis on the retreat and the beauty of this kind of happening is that you've all given yourselves the gift of a space and a time to develop the mindfulness continuously. Of course, there'll be many times the mind goes off and wanders. That's fine. Each time, come back, come back, come back. And as we do that, as we keep bringing the mind back to wakefulness, this momentum of concentration, the momentum of mindfulness, the momentum of understanding begins to grow very strong.
part of doing this, part of this commitment has to do with a certain spirit of renunciation. I think this is important to reflect on the beginning of a retreat. For these three months, we are really creating a great practice monastery. That's really what it is. It's like one of the great monasteries of the world where people come together to practice the Dhamma of liberation, the Dhamma of freeing the mind. And to accomplish this, to walk on this path, there's a certain spirit of renunciation that's needed. What kind of renunciation? One kind which, which really marks a difference between this environment that we're creating and the world outside is that for this period of time, we're renouncing pleasure as the guiding principle in our choices. But that's not the measure the choice of our actions, of whether it's pleasant or not. That's a major letting go, a major renunciation. And see that there's something more important than pleasant feeling. We also have a spirit of renunciation in coming here with respect to our family and friends and the people we're close to. Even people who come here with close friends or who meet close friends here or come as couples, it's really a a letting go of that, a renouncing of that for this time in order to cultivate the spirit of aloneness. There's a renunciation involved in that. And I think on the most subtle level, it's a renunciation of our ideas about things, our ideas about ourselves, our ideas about enlightenment, all our old ways of viewing viewing things. Because this renunciation on this level really letting go of our old concepts, it enables us, as Krishnamurti expressed it in a very very nice phrase, it enables us to realize the freedom from the known. We're very familiar with what we already know. Can we go beyond what we already know? freedom from the known into the unknown. That's the incredible excitement of this journey. And I think just in the, in the go-around this afternoon, you know, so many of you mentioned a kind of excitement or anticipation or fear or you know, some just energy which reflects this renunciation. It's, it's entering into a few months of not knowing. 
We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to arise. And in a very fundamental way, there's a great joy in that freedom from the known. Our commitment to this, our commitment to the effort which is necessary, the commitment to the continuity of attention which is necessary, is not something which can be forced. We can't get tight and force ourselves to do this. Through practice, what is revealed is that a very sustaining energy for commitment rather than an energy that may be strong for a short while and then flags, but a sustaining energy is that of interest. Not of, I should do this, or I should be this way, because that doesn't last long. And it creates, really creates an internal pressure. If we can tap into that place of interest and of willingness in the mind, just to explore, to see, It's the sense of feeling whatever happens, whatever arises in experience, let me see it. Let me open to it. Now, often we'll be speaking about the need for a great and heroic effort because it takes that. It takes a strong energy and a strong effort. But the other side of that heroic effort is the side of a deep surrendering. It's it's a surrendering, it's an opening to what is coming, to what is arising. One period in my practice, something that one of my teachers suggested was at the beginning of each sitting to make a kind of reflection in the mind of surrendering to the Dhamma. I would sit down and just get quiet for a moment. I surrender to the Dhamma. Whatever happens, whatever arises, let me be with it, let me see it. And that quality was a very important balance to the quality of making strong effort. So that's a balance to play with as you undertake this journey. It's a willingness to open to the entire range of experience. And there are lots of surprises. There are times when you will feel so happy, wonderfully happy, happier perhaps than you've ever been in your life. And there'll be other times, (laughs) other times, (laughs) you know, where there'll be boredom and frustration and discouragement and depression and 
And it just keeps opening and changing. And and this is the path of discovery, of, of a willingness and an interest, not only not only a tolerance, but a real interest just to explore, to see the whole range. Okay, this is the mind. This is the heart. This is who we are. Let me see it. Because it is the only way to understand it. And it's only through understanding that freedom comes. If we don't understand the nature of these phenomena, we can never be free. Two qualities among many which we'll, which we'll be talking about, but two to begin with, which will be of tremendous help if you keep coming back to them and cultivating them. Sort of the, the quality or the energy of undertaking this whole practice is that of metta and karuna, loving kindness and compassion. Can we undertake this retreat in a spirit of friendliness towards ourselves? Whatever it is that's coming up. Just that that sense of metta and compassion. Now, when we're in a lot of suffering, can we feel compassion for it? Just as we might feel compassion for the suffering in others. Can we be you know, walking or floating or gliding on a basic field of friendliness towards experience? This metta and compassion soften the heart and they soften the mind and they make it much easier to be with whatever is coming. And so each day there should be some kind of reflection or practice of these qualities. There is something to consider in the practice which I feel is tremendously helpful, but also extremely difficult to understand in a balanced way. And that has to do with the articulation for ourselves of our goals and our purpose and our aims in practice. When I first went to India to say the very first question when Indraji asked me, the first time I met him, I said, what's your goal in the practice? But for many people, the idea of having a goal or having an aim creates difficulties. You know, we've, we've 
seen very clearly and often in our lives the dangers of being too goal-oriented and how it takes us out of the moment. And so we add a lot of extra things to this idea of working towards something. What is it that we add to it? We add a lot of expectation. Now, one of the things that happens when we begin to articulate a goal, so the mind gets filled with expectation or hope, and following right on the heels of expectation and hope is discouragement and disappointment. Or we can get very ambitious with respect to a goal. But all of these things, the expectations and the hopes and the ambitions and the discouragement and the disappointment, all of these problem areas, they're all extra. They're not actually intrinsic to this idea of having a clear sense of purpose, having a clear vision of what we're doing and where the path leads. And this is why I say it's difficult, it's very difficult, to have a mature and balanced understanding of this. But when we do, when we can sort through all of this extra overlay, there is a great power in having a clear vision. Everyone here has some purpose in mind. Now, you couldn't have made the often great effort that's needed to come here and be here for three months without having some idea of purpose, of aim. What happens when we (laughs) clarify it for ourselves, when we make it explicit, it can give an inspiration and an energy to our practice. It becomes a reference point for our efforts because we can see whether a particular action is actually leading us towards our aim or leading us away from it. Just Sharon and I were sitting just this last spring for two months in Australia with Upandita Sayadaw. So the experience of a long retreat is, is again very fresh. And so much of this was so clear, you know, my alarm would go off in what seemed like the middle of the night. And each time, there was this choice in the mind, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to make the effort to get up? It didn't feel like getting up. It felt like rolling over and going back to sleep. And that was strong, strong inclination, strong conditioning in the mind, much more comfortable. But when there was this sense of, okay, what is my purpose here? What am I doing here? It was easier to see okay, what's leading, what's leading onward toward that, toward that goal and what's not. It's 
So the clearer we are about our purpose, it becomes this reference point for us that really helps us stay on the path. Articulating clearly our vision. Why are we practicing? Why are we doing this? It can inspire the level of commitment that is necessary to fulfill our aspirations. Now, it's one thing if people come to retreat with a sense of, oh, it'll be a nice time to relax and de-stress. And it, it can be that. You know, just kind of cooling out. That's one level. And that, that takes a certain level of energy and commitment. It takes another whole level if we really want to explore the nature of suffering in a deep way. And it takes another whole level of commitment and energy if we're really aiming towards this radical transformation of the mind, this radical freeing of the mind, of of enlightenment, of liberation. And so we can really see what is necessary for what we want to accomplish. Clarity is a tremendous force. It's a tremendous power for us. Sometimes people hear of you know, a vision or a goal or an aim of enlightenment or freedom. And there's a strange psychological quirk that can happen. And in discussing this with people, it's, it's always surprising to me how frequent it is. Often just talking about this possibility arouses in people a sense of unworthiness. Now, to think about freedom or to think about enlightenment often gets translated through our own conditioning. Well, that means that somehow I'm not good enough now. You know, I have to become something else. I have to become better. And that's a tremendously depressing force. But that's based on quite a misunderstanding of this whole process. Because this aim or this vision or this goal of freedom, of understanding, of enlightenment, is not something outside of ourselves. It's finding out who we are. And so it's much more a process of uncovering the Dhamma within us. It's not getting something which we don't have. And this is the great beauty of the Dhamma. This potential of enlightenment, this potential of freedom is within us. And so our practice is a settling back into ourselves. It's not a reaching out. So if we see this clearly, 
becomes a great aid for us in our practice in understanding what we're doing and how we can walk on the path with a vision, with a strong sense of purpose, and yet without that toppling forward, without the reaching out for something. We settle back into the process and letting the Dhamma unfold. The Buddha described this path, this process, in a very nice way. He said that the deepening of our wisdom is like the ocean floor gradually sloping away from the shore. It's just this gradual deepening. And so we undertake this retreat. And if we understand, if we understand and have a context for what we're doing, we realize we take step by step by step. And in a very balanced way, there's this gradual deepening of our understanding. And it's beautiful to watch how this happens in us. There are a few common meditative phenomena which I wanted to brief you on. Because if you have some sense of it now, some sense of understanding these phenomena, it will help you proceed in a more balanced and equanimous way. The first is the understanding that it is very natural to go through some major mood swings. As I mentioned a little earlier, you'll be happy, you'll be sad, you'll be exhilarated, you'll be bored, you'll be depressed, you'll be everything. None of it's a mistake. It's not that it shouldn't be happening. This is what is going to happen. And so if you can remember that, as you're in the middle of one of these swings of mood, you can kind of step back and just make some space and allow it, allow it to wash through. It's in that stepping back and feeling it, but without being lost in it, that we begin to understand both the nature of these emotions and also a more balanced relationship to them. Make a lot of space. Make a lot of space for the ups and downs of moods. One of the insights that comes with respect to them is the seeing that they're simply the result of certain conditions coming together. Certain conditions arise, we feel a certain way. The conditions change, the feelings change. And so it's all part of this passing show of phenomena. Conditions coming together, conditions disappearing. There's a, there's a great simplicity in that when we have enough spaciousness in the mind to see it. The second phenomena, meditative phenomena, 
usually doesn't reach epidemic proportions until maybe after the first month or so. And that's a disease called yogi mind. Yogi mind happens as the result of a tremendously heightened sensitivity to things. One time we were practicing in Burma. And people actually got into... It wasn't actually a fist fight, but it was blows over whether the fans should be on or off in the meditation hall. Right here at IMS, we've had years of the window wars <laughs> come into the hall, the windows open, <laughs> close them. Some people like it open, some people like it closed. And after some period of time, yogi mind <laughs> things get blown way, way out of proportion to the actual event. You ask the office for some toothpaste and they get you the wrong brand. It's <laughs> a major catastrophe. And it's, it's what's amazing is how real it seems. So just to be aware, just to be aware that as you spend these weeks and months in silence and intensity of practice, the whole system gets so sensitive and things can loom tremendously large, even very little things. If you see this happening, if you wonder why you've been crying for hours over the brand of toothpaste, start noting yogi mind. <laughs> yogi mind, yogi mind. If you need a reality check, just come to speak to one of us to see what's really happening. It's common. It's a common phenomenon, which is why I'm mentioning it. There's also a phenomenon which I've noticed a lot in my own practice, especially in the earlier years. Something that I called work days and reward days. Yeah, it's like days can go by and it feels like you're just slogging along and nothing much is happening. And you're putting forth the effort and it's just you know, a kind of tedious quality to the effort. And then one time you sit down and it's just all going. You know, and there's a momentum and there's a lightness and there's an energy. And this can happen in, in cycles. And just to be prepared for that. You know, that sometimes you'll just feel that uh, tremendous effort is required and at other times it all just clicks. It's helpful to remember that when it feels like you need to be putting in a lot of effort, it doesn't mean that things are wrong or that the practice is bad. It's just that that's the, that's the time of the cycle that you're in. So many times the mind will wander, the mind will go off. Just each time to bring it back, begin again. Or begin again countless number of times. 
The wandering mind does not mean that one is a bad yogi. It's just another opportunity to begin again. There are a couple of understandings that will serve you in the practice. I just want to mention a few briefly tonight. One is the understanding that meditation is not thinking about things. Along with yogi mind, a very common meditative phenomena is that when we sit, we all become very brilliant and creative. And we have, we have these wonderful ideas you know, of things we're going to do and understandings about our relationships and this and that. And our mind gets so fascinated and so entranced by the brilliance and creativity of our minds that it's easy to spend hours lost in thought. In my, in my earlier years in India, in the first years of my practice, before I had any idea you know, of what would be happening in the West, I used to spend hours designing meditation centers. That was amazing. I would just sit and plan it all out. It feels good, and it feels creative, and it feels helpful, and it's not meditation. So if you can remember that, it's not that these thoughts are not going to come, or shouldn't come, because they certainly will. But if, as they come, the ones that are particularly enticing or exciting or interesting, if you can remember, thinking about this is not meditation. It helps you to disengage. It realigns you with your sense of purpose. Another understanding is that meditation fundamentally is not psychotherapy. It can be very therapeutic. We really open up a lot that we haven't understood or that's been closed in our emotions, in our inner world. But the purpose of meditation goes much deeper. The purpose of the practice goes beyond our personal stories, goes beyond our personal history and conditioning to something which is much more universal. What we're aiming for is an understanding of the nature of the mind itself, the nature of consciousness itself. And so again, it's not that psychological insights won't happen, because they will and they're valuable, but it's not to get lost in them. And it's just to see it, to acknowledge, and to go on. Because otherwise, we get caught and we stay on a certain level. And there's more to explore and more to do. The third understanding is really two sides. One side is the understanding that the practice is not really a holiday. 
you know, it's an amazing task that, that we're undertaking. This understanding and transformation of the mind. The idea is not simply to allow the mind to do what it wants and to go where it wants. There's a real training involved. So on the one hand, it's not really a holiday. On the other hand, it actually is a lot of fun. It's fun in the sense of an activity which is tremendously fulfilling. Just imagine for a moment, or try to think of something else which you could do from five in the morning till ten at night, uninterruptedly. What else, what other activity could you do for three months with that level of attention and commitment? And how long can one listen to music? How long can one eat? But somehow there's something amazingly compelling about becoming awake. When we get into this rhythm of practice, just the interest in staying awake moment to moment to moment is tremendously compelling and deeply fulfilling. Now, the beginning of the three-month retreat each year, it feels like, I don't know, in some way it feels to me like a, uh, in some science fiction movie, you know, a spaceport. We're all on this spaceship about to, about to launch off on this journey. And it's a tremendous journey because as vast as the universe is outside, and you go outside and then you look up at the, the stars and the galaxies and realize that what we see is infinitesimal in terms of what's out there. As vast as the universe is outside, that's how vast it is inside. And that's the journey that we're beginning. It's tremendously awe-inspiring, this journey of understanding ourselves. Let's sit for a few minutes together.